and welcome to episode 151 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and thanks to the Art Gallery Society of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, I have a special episode for you today. It's a conversation that I had recently at the gallery with James Powditch in the Artist in Conversation series, which I've been involved in for the last few years. And they were very generous in allowing me to include their recording of the talk in this podcast. I've been so proud to be part of this series of conversations, which has been with the support of the Sir William Dobell Foundation, who do lots of great things for artists and the art community. Also, if you're a member of the Art Gallery Society, you can see a video version of the talk in this episode, and I've put a link to that in the show notes as well. And these talks are in the gallery's fabulous Centenary Auditorium, which feels like we're in a huge lounge room where I bring up images on a screen of the artworks, and it's just a great atmosphere. And broadcaster Robbie Buck also interviews artists in this series, so it's worth following the Art Gallery Society on social media if you're not already to keep notified of events coming up or just check out the gallery's website. And the next talk I'm involved in is actually on Wednesday night on the 25th of October at 6pm and I'll be talking with Steve Lopez. He's been on the podcast twice and I think there might be a few tickets left so I've included a link in the show notes for that. Now, on to the actual conversation I had with James Powditch. You might have already seen James's paintings because he's been a finalist in the Archie Wynn and Sulman Prizes for a combined total of about 25 times. But he's also won the Mossman Art Prize and the Blake Prize, as well as being shortlisted in many others. Interestingly, though, his first love at school was filmmaking, which he tried to study at art school, only to find that they didn't actually teach much about film at art school. So he pivoted into the theatre world, building sets and making props for the Sydney Theatre Company and the Sydney Dance Company. But later he met up with an old friend who had also left art school and they put on a show together. He's since exhibited in over 10 solo shows and you might be surprised to learn that his work in his exhibitions are not so much painting but exquisite construction-based assemblages. He's painted many famous people for the Archie, including the ones we talk about in this episode, as well as his father, Peter Powditch, who died last year. He was a celebrated Australian artist with work in the National Gallery of Australia and every state gallery in the country. And we talk about his relationship with his father in this episode, as well as some excellent stories behind the portraits of all those others. You're going to hear me talking about works which I've projected onto the screen in the talk and I've put all those images on the website talkingwithpainters.com or if you're a member of the Art Gallery Society, you can watch that video that I mentioned before. But really, you can still listen to this episode without seeing those images. I started the conversation by asking James about his fabulous portrait of our Prime Minister, once upon a time in Marrickville, Anthony Albanese, who he painted in 2020 when he was the then leader of the opposition. And I asked him the obvious question, how did he get Albo to sit for him? Anthony Albanese is my local member. Um, I'm a card-carrying, disclosure, card-carrying Labor member forever. Um, so I essentially just went through, and I know him from around the traps. His boy, Nathan, went to school, same school, Leichhardt Secondary College with my daughter. and um, So I know him as my local member and have since 1996 when he got elected to Parliament. So really I just contacted him through his office and sort of I think he's probably the easiest person I've ever had because I don't think he felt he could say no. 
because I'm a constituent, right? And, uh, but he also, he did know, he loved my work I did of Nick Cave a number of years ago, which we'll talk about later on because he's a huge music fan. So on the odd occasion, you know, people you don't know well enough really to have a chat in the small, every time I ran into him, he said, oh, I just loved your picture of Nick Cave in the Archibald. So like I knew that he liked that and he's such a keen music nut and I am too. So it was a bit of a no-brainer. He said yes and, you know. And let's talk a little bit about the title because you're going to notice tonight that, a, that nearly every time, and I think every title almost that we talk about is based on a film. And so this one's Once Upon a Time in Marrickville and it is a reference to... And it's lifted from, well, obviously just the expression Once Upon a Time, um, Once Upon a Time in the West, Sergio Leone's big sort of revisionist Western, Once a Time in Hollywood, recent Tarantino film. Once Upon a Time in America, Sergio Leone again. So there was always, there's often a film reference. The title for this one came very late. Like I really, I often go into these works without really quite knowing where I'm going. Like I wanted to do an album cover just to reference his musical taste and sort of, um, obviously the focus wasn't remotely on politics. I kind of just wanted to deal with that common love of music and the bands we love. Um, just a little tidbit is that he did, I don't know, do you remember um, an election in the early, like 2012 or something? Um, Julie Bishop, Anthony Albanese and whoever was head of the Greens were asked to program Rage that year uh, and they did oh. 20 songs, right? And Albo's set list seriously would have been my set list. It, it just like was absolutely quintessential, you know, bands like The Smiths, The Cure, New Order, yeah. Hunters and Collectors, just thinking um, The Triffids, you know, it was just like Joy Division, Love Will Tear Us Apart. Like, like I just read it and went, oh, my God, this guy's. <laughs> Like, you yeah. know, Simpatico, there's a connection. He's very similar age. He's probably a couple he's of a, years older. He's a few years older and all these yeah. bands, which I loved and grew up, but I was a little bit too young to see, he'd seen in their heyday in Sydney at people, you know, at the Horden Pavilion, um, yeah. et cetera. So that, that was the connection. That's really what we talked about when he turned up for his sitting. What was um, that like? What was the sitting like? It was really, look, it was slightly tense because he, he came for his sitting literally three days before COVID broke and we all locked down for months, right? And so initially I basically just said, look, you, you know, you're the opposition leader. You're probably privy to some good information. You know, how bad is this going to be, they get? And he said, it's not going to be great. And mm. then it was just music. We just sat there and just talked about bands. I, you know, I was saying, you know, what was it like to see New Order in 1981 at the Horden Pavilion? And he just, you know, and he's got a great memory, always facts on hand or whatever. And, um, that yeah, would have been just, more fun to talk about than politics, oh, I think. God, I mean, I wanted to talk politics a bit as well, but I had a sort of limited amount of time. Um, he was really lovely. He was very natural. He actually wore, I told him he had to wear an old T-shirt because I wanted something grungy, right? Mm. And his T-shirt was way too clean and neat, right? So he actually had to put on one of my really bad, stinky old T-shirts, which was sort of torn and spattered and just really quite... Oh, that's Gross. interesting, you know, because that was something that stood out to me was I really liked the T-shirt yeah. because it reflected something about him. But now I know it's not his. I think you got him voted in, actually, <laughs> <laughs> because it it seems so authentic. I probably didn't tell him it's got to be old, you yeah, know, like yeah, I yeah, can't remember yeah. what it was. It was anyway. Well, and also I really love the pose. It's a very contemplative expression. Well, again, listen, I, I got I, when I do my shoots for my Archibalds, I take hundreds of pictures, like often hundreds and hundreds of pictures because, you know, with the digital you can just keep going. So I had a number of pictures and they were much more upbeat. I can't remember, but I didn't. I mean, basically it was COVID, right? So as I then, you know, three days later settled down to think about what am I going to paint, we knew the Archibald was going to be cancelled, obviously, by then, as everything was. It sort of got much more reflective um, and sort of the, the, the idea, and it was in the spiel for the article, was that it was, you know, after a hard day, you know, just dealing with 
shed, you know, what mm. would Anthony be at home? And I just imagine him sitting quietly, listening to music in the background, you know, maybe reading his notes from the day and decompressing. Yeah, yeah. Right, just for yeah. an hour or two We're out of the limelight. Because at that time also we'd had the bushfires, big time. Mm. Um, mm. And you mightn't remember, but he was on television every day. Like he was really there every day, along with obviously the government at the time. So I just thought he must be exhausted. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you decompress and relax after that? Yeah, that's right. Well, I think you really captured yeah. that in that expression. And talking about music, oh, the other way, because uh, there were two album covers we're going to look at, which I think have something to do with that yeah. portrait. Can you tell well, me a bit about Well, just roughly that? in my head, I wanted to, you know, I always use this very stark lighting to get a very, you know, a, a, a raking light on a face because it pulls up contrast and I'm using pure black, pure white, no midtones. So just in the back of my head, I had a couple of old albums from the 80s that I remembered. Lloyd Cole was one, this one. Um, so that was the reference point for the, I guess, the face or the sort of emotional sort of vibe of the work, not so much a direct um, take, but lots of black. I love negative space in works. This year, Sam Neill has a more negative space probably than anyone, than any of them have had. Mm, mm. Um, and then the next work was just a cheeky little jibe. This is a New Order album called Power, Corruption and Lies, right? And now he's a massive New Order fan. And all I did was lift the little, um, the reference code up in the right hand corner and popped that down in his picture, which I never yeah. told him that it was we'll Power, Corruption and Lies. Um, but I just wanted to add a touch of colour in that corner, right? <laughs> not that, that he's not his thing, right? Okay. But he, but yeah, it yeah, was yeah, just yeah. referencing politics and the brutal nature of it. So I wanted a dark sort of reflective thing, but the light, you know, the lightness is, it, it's given lightness by the, the floral element in the text and the, and the t-shirt is old, um, uh, wallpaper that I imagine he might have had in his 1970s camper down flat with his mum, right? So that yeah, was sort of right. laid in the background. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. That's a really successful portrait. I love that. Okay, now how? So this next one is obviously uh, of Nick Cave. Yes. Um, and Citizen Kane is is I presume a play on the na- on the name as well. Yes. Uh, but I would suspect it'd be very hard to get a sitting with Nick Cave. Okay, so the Nick Cave story is it's quite shameful in certain respects. It worked out well, but what happened is I I, I ran in. I, I knew his um light. Damien Oxley is a, a old friend of mine. That's his lighting designer and tours with him and is for years or whatever. And we ended up sort of connecting again when our kids ended up at school together. And I asked Damien whether he could, you know, ask Nick Cave whether, you know, he'd be into it. And he 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 didn't want to get involved, but he gave me Nick Cave's PA, who I then you know I'd had a few successful Archibald hangs the year before. I'd had a picture of Ben Quilty in. Um, so I flicked the email. I want to do this. And my pitch was, you know, I want to paint Nick as a sort of modern day Citizen Kane, you know, as Citizen Cave and in a rock opera, but it's about Murdoch and, you know, the power of, um, news corporation and, you know, and anyway, I got a very polite no back from his PA saying this is not something Nick would be interested in. And then the next year I tried again. I had another. I can't remember the time frame exactly, but I had another Archibald hanging. So I tried again and I got back a very polite no thank you. Um, and I think I then tried again and I obviously got the email, maybe drunk, maybe too few many drinks when I came home and I sent back a very simple, well, fuck yous all, right? To yeah, which, right. To which case I got a, woke up to quite a few messages from Damien, um, his lighting designer, saying, I've just had a call from his PA, um, you know, what? Did you do? And I went into massive mea culpa, you know, you know, apology mode or whatever. And then I got this lovely email back from his PA saying, ha ha, James, not to worry at all. It's so funny. Nick was here when your email saying fuckers came through and he was just chatting to me at the time about that he would, might do it. Right. So 
Are you still available? Do you want to do it? He'll be in Melbourne on these dates for Christmas. If you can meet him, he's happy to do it. Oh, wow. So it was one of those, like, god-awful moments saved, right? Gee, that's amazing. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, actually, I was going to – I didn't know that story, but I was going to ask you because most people, if they get rejected, like someone approaches someone with the art tour, you get it rejected, you just – if that happened to me, I would be so embarrassed. I would just never, ever speak to the person again. But you persist. I I am. I'm persistent. Often there's an opening, you know, somebody leaves the door open, in which case you feel you can persist, right? With Nick Cave, there really wasn't an opening. I was given quite straightforward. He's not interested several times. But anyway, it was just a lovey. And I flew down to Melbourne. He'd been briefed. I'd send him, if you flick forward, there's another image um, from the film Citizens. I'd sort of sent a lot of reference material for him and saying, this is sort of the vibe I'm after. Yeah. You know, I want to want to sort of... A picture of you smiling that's like you, what you'd be on your campaign poster and then but I want mm. you railing like an angry demigod at the at, the, at your lectern as well and so he just he was terrific he was like an actor yes so I can he, imagine he, that. he turned up yes. and he's like what do you want me to do we had the lights set up and he's just like okay and I'm like hey just look angrier okay and you know or smile and he doesn't I've done a lot of reference as you can do online these days and he doesn't smile a lot he very controls his image very carefully um, so there weren't a lot of shots of him smiling, and I've just got these fantastic shots of him smiling or smirking, yeah, yeah. and we just use one just with a hint in the end. Did you? Um, yeah, that's right. Well, we're just going to have a quick look. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the oh. wrong way. I just wanted to see it again. So um, just, yes, just a lovely, just a, just a hint and a twinkle in his eye, and he was terrific. And then everything else, all the text that came in, he had nothing to do with it. So essentially he was a prop in my my imaginary film. So it, the intern, the, the works, this is something I quite like as well. Every work sort of has its own internal logic. And this one was like, you know, imagine it's 1983. Who was big at the time? Who was making movies? So all the people that are starring in that are people I loved. And they're also sort of in their heyday. Debbie Harry mm. was fresh out of Blondie, but doing a lot of films as well. Um, Johnny Cash was still around. I mean, so it all had its own internal logic. It's direct. It's a 20th Century Fox presents because Murdoch owns 20th Century Fox and it's meant to be about his life. Vim Vendors was huge at the time with Paris, Texas, art house films, and Nick Cave had done soundtracks for his films, Wings of Desire. So there was all. Mm. And also in 1983, Nick Cave was 26, which was exactly the age um, Orson Welles was when he made the original Citizen Kane. Wow. Well, that's interesting, all those meanings and things, because that's, because we'll see that actually in these these assemblage works as well. So this is so we're moving away from the Archibald because you you do have a certain style with your Archibald paintings that we could, we've seen already. <laughs> yeah. But this is um, another body of work. This well actually this is from your recent show with Nanda Hobbs, and um, it was called Medium Cool Journalism and Film, uh, which basically so all the titles are referring to films that had journalism as as part of the theme. Yeah, they were the central tenet of the film. Yeah, but these assemblages are all so stunning. I just love them. They're so as as you can see, so meticulously composed. But they're essentially found objects made from found objects, aren't they? So Murray's right. There's two like really quite distinct. Like my Archibald pictures and often even my wind pictures, they really almost have no relation to what I do 99% of the time for shows. So, yes, they're all – the works I do in show are just basically layered assemblages, which are built usually flat on a bench, different scales, some very big. These were about, I think, 1.2 by 80 centimetres, these ones, um, and then box-framed 
in, you know, in deep box frames behind Perspex to protect them, um, but found objects. So in this one, you've got old cards. Old, uh, that's an, a phonograph record, but a very, very old one that's almost like 10 mil thick, like an old Bakelite, oh, super, yeah. super old. An old op shop print of a music star. That's, again, they're just, they're often, I'm um, combining elements of certain colour, certain tone and mm. a certain vibe. Citizen Kane's obviously a black and white film. So I was going with, you know, very neutral, muted tones. Um, Are there things that you have in the studio? Yeah, I usually? generally, I generally all I, this particular show, I had everything already. So I've got a lot of you know little tubs full of bits and pieces and map drawers full of paper, sort of old film posters, photographs, sort of stuff. Sometimes, if I'm working on a sh- show. <laughs> I'll have to go out and source material. You know, I'll think I'll need something. Yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah. need some more green. Yes, you know? So yes. I might go to an op shop and buy an old wardrobe to chop up to give me some green panels. But this show, pretty much I had everything. And the works in this show were also quite delicate and fine. So I didn't need to look for a lot of big amounts of material. Mm, so, mm, yeah, so mm. all the bits here. Well, um, just talk, yeah, and just talking about the, this, the idea of film, because we haven't really talked about it, it's, you know, I said you were a cinema junkie as a child, but you yeah. watched a lot of film at, when you were growing up. Yeah. What sort of films were you attracted to? Well, I sort of grew up, I mean, I was way too young to be watching them, but um, in that, you know, that sort of mid, early, mid-70s um, American cinema scene, you know, when, you know, the the, the new, um, they're called, um, not New Wave, what were they called? Oh, it was basically your Sco- Martin Scorsese's, yeah. you know, like your, your dark, though, you know, it was like a fairly taxi dark, driver or something. Taxi driver, yeah. all the president's men, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You know, they were very, they were sort of realist, um, social realist films, and they generally had pretty downbeat e- endings. You know, there weren't a lot of happy endings, and it was also the Watergate Nixon era. Mm. So and post, and also the end of the Vietnam War. So there was that real disillusionment, and the end of the Hollywood um, system. You know, in the late yeah. '60s, and so all the young mavericks who were really young, like Spielberg, was twenty six when he made Jaws, right? Wow. You know, we're given free reign because they realise these guys can make us money and they make films cheaply. Not necessarily Jaws wasn't cheap, but these guys were all, their initial films were very, you know, Taxi Driver costs next to nothing to make, you know, comparative to a blockbuster. Um, And I just love those dark films like Deliverance. You know, I saw Deliverance when I was about 12 years old, for God's sakes, (laughs) right? In the modified for television version. Um, (laughs) And, yeah. So when you're making one of these, so are you thinking about well let's have a look yeah. at the I mean I don't want to pin you down yeah. obviously because I know that it's uh, yeah go on no no go oh I thought you... <laughs> <laughs> I, it's often a loose look essentially I need a hook to create a body of work so I what I will do is I I've been I've jumped around through different subject matters and I did a whole show once where I did every country that held the Olympics and the show was called Superpower and I made it it was on the same year Beijing held their Olympics right so mm, I'll, mm. I'll pick a thing theme and it can be often political or you know to do with what's going on in the zeitgeist at the moment or whatever but I keep coming back to film just because I I love it and what it does it gives me kind of a language or a hook or a way to basically build what are essentially abstractions Mm. Um, because I kind of just need more than putting things together I need a sort of the as I mentioned before the internal logic of the work so this last show for example I thought I'd done Laura Tingle last year for the Archibald and the year before I'd done Kerry O'Brien and the year before that I'd done Anthony Albanese. And I thought, politics, I love politics. You know, I live and breathe it. I've done it the last few years. I should do a show about how journalism and film interact. 
right? So that oh, gives me my hook. I then yeah. write a list of my yeah. favourite films, which all the president's men, um, you know, and a heap well, of other. Well, actually, talking about this one, all the president's men, um, and also I should point out this this image I was saying to you before, this image and the previous one have both got vinyl records in them, but which gives the impression they've all got vinyl records in them, but this is the only two in the show that had it, just by coincidence well, I chose these two. But it's interesting to see that there's sort of references to you know, the movie itself in this work. And if, like, for example, those those strips there, they've actually got, um, like, symptoms, like bil- I think it says well, bilious. This one was quite a, this one was quite a, look, and I thought it was amusing. I just, I, I did a, there's a, the next one we look at is a big sort of more graphic, all the president's men, but I just had this vision of Nixon, you know, as the walls are crumbling around him, right, and he's been recording Everything and like on those tapes, he's probably just got every ailment known to man, right? All he wants to do is get out of there or feign illness or whatever. So this was a, a, a set of a set of um, cards naming different illnesses or whatever. So I just imagine, you know, he'd be there. He was, he'd have, you know, I can't quite read. I think it's nausea, nausea, fatigue. flatulence, you know, yeah, headaches, yeah, yeah, yeah. depression, alcoholism, you know, like, and he's just have he'd have every ailment known to man, right? And it's all sort of dripping out of a you know, what sort of is meant to represent a, you know, a tape recording or whatever from the White House. That's really interesting. Uh, but, I mean, the thing that really strikes me with this and the previous one, is it's the precision and the composition and the detail and the sort of almost perfectionism about it. Like I'm looking at those three little beads on the right there and I thought, oh, I bet you spent a long time yeah. <laughs> figuring out. what. Do you spend a long time with these compositions? Like are you very perfectionistic Look, about it? I I am. This show I did quite differently than other shows in that I in the in the past because I have a background of set building. I I I was always a bit of a completionist. So it's like I've got to finish the work. I'm building it. I'm building it. It must be finished. Okay, that's finished. Put aside. Start the next one. Right, and that's just the nature of having been involved in a sort of industrial building process. This time around, what I do is I'd lay them out, get them really well, photograph them on the phone, photograph everything. Right, photograph them above pretty well, and then I'd pack them up and put them away and start another one. Right. And then I would come back to them. So I could, or I had half a dozen going simultaneously and then I finesse them. Right. Which can be, you know, it seems insane, but you know, it might be just moving that bead a centimeter because it's like it, I, things just feel right. Mm. There's no way. I mean, I know a lot of artists say this. There's no idea of when it's finished. You just, you just kind of know. And something my father taught me and taught all his students over the years is, you know, the secret is knowing when to stop. You know, because we mm. all can go too far. And especially when you're dealing with all this sort of ephemera and stuff, there really is a tendency to just want to keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding complexity, which can just overwhelm it. So that's the balance between, because I, I, my studio is pretty messy and full of a lot of stuff, right? But I, I love that. I love simplicity in work, but I find it's, I really struggle to stop myself, to pull mm. it back. Mm. With mm. this show, I attempted to sort of really power it back with the dark, with just the white backgrounds floating. Um, in the past, I'd always have book pages, bits and pieces in the background, which then distract. Oh, that's interesting. And also, I think taking the photo of it is probably also gives you a distance as well. Yeah, because I go home, I'm sitting on the couch and I, you look at it, and it's just such a great tool because you're going, okay, yeah. that just, yeah. something is not quite right there, right? Whereas in my previous life, I would have just already finished it and there'd be no way to fix it. Or I probably wouldn't even think about it again to know that I needed to fix it. It gives you a, a breathing space. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. So this is the other work we're talking about, the other All the President's Men work. And if you could just imagine this is almost three metres wide. So the other work we're looking at was, was I think, 80 yeah. centimetres. Yeah, so that's and roughly scale is, as well, actually. Yeah, that's right. 
And um, actually, I was go- I was going to ask you with respect to this that the question about the set building because it sort of made me feel as though you must have a pretty good woodworking skills, yeah, to to be able to do this to such a sort of perfection. Well, I was yes, yeah, so I was trained for years just precision, not fine carpentry, um, but you know, set building just taught me basic techniques of building. So these a big multi-panel like work like this, or the archibalds are basically built on theatre flats that I then can layer on top of. Um, what are theatre flats? Well, theatre flats are the lightweight timber panels that you build sets out of, oh, right? Okay. That you can move around. They're skin ply and timber frames, right? And they weigh next to nothing, and you can bang them, and then they have A frames on the back. Oh, that's interesting because that's something that you learnt from theatre sets, yeah. Which other artists might not know, you know? It's not. It's not. It's just <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just yeah. really basic building skills and precision. You know, the old mm. what is the expression? Measure twice, cut once. Because I'm always because even though I have a lot of stuff, I'm always really terrified I'm going to ruin a really good bit of old wood, right? Yeah, and then I can't yeah. put it back together again, you know. So like you know, it's tragic. So <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, but it's yeah. like so you don't you know oh, I don't look because I might want that big that for something else, you know. Can I afford to chop a piece off it? Well, it's interesting because I was talking to your dealer Ralph Hobbs, and he was sort of saying. Talking about your work, and he was saying how you can't artificially age something, so that it is precious because yeah. the, you, you can't just sort of get another piece of wood and just make it old like that. So no. each of these old things are sort of quite precious. In well, a way. I'm quite pedantic like that as well. As the stuff has to, ha- I, I don't like to alter it. I mean, I will clean it up, you know, just so it's not flaking. It's stable, if you like, with old timber like that bit of blue there. Um, down the bottom. So I'll stabilise things so that they're not falling apart, especially the works in the box frames because you'll end up with a little sprinkling of, you know, bits and pieces at the bottom. Mm. But I really don't um, – I don't want the faux fake – it's got to be real. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep. so in the Archibalds they're all original book pages that are in that you can see sort of from behind the black, <laughs> mm, you know. There's mm, no photocopies or – Collage, yeah. I wanted to talk about that actually when we got – I don't know if it's the next one we're talking about. Um, yes, so I did want to talk about the collage, and obviously this is the Laura Tingle um, Archibald winning pack, which is one of my favourites, got to say. I you love just this said winning. Uh, sorry. <laughs> when I say winning, it's because it's won all the People's Choice Awards all over New South Wales, every gallery it goes to. So I think it is a winner. Um, and I know Laura Tingle loves it because I saw on her Instagram page. So um, it is. there's something about it that is quite... Uh, uh, appealing, I think, and and striking, um, and I think it's got to do with. I think the eyes are quite uh, well. The eyes, interesting. Like you know, a huge amount of portraiture. If your eyes, you know, they've got a. If you don't get the eyes right, your picture's not going to be. It just can't work. So, I trawl through the photos looking for eyes that pop. You know, that have you know, have got enough detail. When I start, when I because when I contrast the picture out to just get the black and white, you lose a lot of detail. So, yeah. you know, fortunately, I mean, yeah, fortunately, I've I've. Laura's definitely the be- the best. She's also, I would like to say, my favourite subject of all time. Is she? she? Why? Was, well, she just embraced the whole Archibald thing brilliantly. She loved it, you know, and yeah. she came to the opening and she did a talk the next night and she, like you said, posted on Instagram and, you know, we did a couple of talks for the regional tours and things. And um, so she loved it and her mum bought the picture, you know. Her mum absolutely adored it. I, can I tell you a little story about yeah, just yeah, yeah, on yeah. the Laura originally said no to me, right, <laughs> so I got to her, it's all six degrees of separation, but I'd done Kerry O'Brien the year before and he was an old friend of my dad. So that's how I'd gotten to Kerry. And Kerry, just we just had a chat and he just basically, and I said, so do I need to send you stuff, Kerry? And he's like, no, James, I just need to ascertain whether you're a nutter because, you know, 
or, you know, that, you know, you're fine, we'll do it, blah, blah, blah. So next year I asked Kerry to introduce me to Laura Tingle, assuming, of course, that they, of their colleagues, they're going to know each other. And he's like, no drama at all. So I send my pitch through to her, which is, you know, Laura, you're starring in a film called The Fourth Estate. It's like a political thriller, blah, blah, blah. And she's very much like, ah, oh, look, you know, don't know about that, right? Like it was very, it was very lukewarm. And then essentially, because we were in the lead up to the federal election in 2000. 22 last year so she was about to get super busy right and she essentially pulled the plug and just said look I just can't I've got too much on at the moment and I sent I flicked off one more email saying um you know I think I gave her a pitch with who was starring in the film with her you know I think we've got that actually (laughs) I don't oh oh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I and I put together a mock-up of her jump to the next one if you can Maria so I put together a mock-up of her that's Marlene Dietrich lifted off the previous poster right so I put together a digital mock-up saying no it's going to be terrific in in this space here you know it's going to be starring all the other great journalists of Australian film and it's going to be directed by Jane Campion I think I said you know and anyway and there was there was absolute radio silence and um and then my father passed away right um I was on the plane up. I'd gotten the call in the middle of the night. Dad's passed away. Come up. You know, so I booked tickets in the middle of the night, flying up to Bangalore near Byron the next morning. And as I'm getting off the plane, turn my phone on, there's a message from Laura saying, bugger it, I'll do it. Right, right. To which I had to say, oh, look, that's terrific. Got a bit on the plate at the moment. <laughs> <I'm just> like, <laughs> yeah. But she said a lovely message so saying, you know, just focus, concentrate on family, blah, blah, yeah. blah, and we can talk, you know, when things have settled down. And, um, yeah, she came, and then her father passed away not long after um, mine did last year as well, which was connection. Mm. And um, she came to the studio. We had our sitting. You know, I just grilled her on ABC gossip. You know, on seven thirty <laughs> and right, and what yeah. you know what was going on at the ABC and politics. And I think the federal election was just about to be announced. Um, and I finished the work. This just final thing on her was that I she wasn't in Sydney when I finished it, and it was the day before it had to be shipped here. And um, she couldn't come, but her sister lives in just down the, not far from me in Alexandria and said, oh, can um, Sal come up and have a look at it, you know? Yeah. Um, now, people aren't surprised by my portraits. They're not abstract expressionists where you, you, you go, oh, my God, what's he done? They, you know, they look exactly like the photographs. <laughs> yeah. So no one's suddenly caught out, right? And um, Sal came to the studio and Sal walked in. She's very quiet, Sal. And she just teared up in front of the work. She like she oh. just teared up, right? And was just like, and I was, and she's like, oh, it's just beautiful. It's just you've captured oh. my sister perfectly. But also, as you can see, it's there's sort of a grid like background, and that is that is pages of a book. Isn't so it? they're all pages of books in the yeah. background. She loves oh, who's the oh classical composer that she loved that I just was took it notes Bach, on. I think Bach, yeah. yeah. So there's some Bach references in there. There's a book on cats in there. She we she she sent me um. Oh, whatever the, the the way they present their scripts for seven thirty, like the, the the report she was most proud of at the time, maybe something else has surpassed it. Was her on um I think her misogyny um report, but she sent me the the transcript of that that um or the the script of that night's interview, which is up in her forehead. And also, because you can learn, you obviously glean a bit about people from their social media. And she's just one of the most unassuming people. Like her yeah. social media feed can be quite odd. Like this random picture of a parrot in her garden or a, this and that, you know what I mean? Or a symphony she's seeing. Like there's no, it's not, um, curated in yes, any way. Yes. It just, it's very natural. And I noticed she did a lot of stuff in her gardens down in Canberra. So the second time she came to the studio, we started talking. She was just telling me all about her property and blah, this and that. And I had, all these old, um, they were reprints, but they were off the original etching plates of the Endeavour um, 
you know, the first voyage of the Endeavour. And oh, yeah. Parkinson did all the illustrations under Banks's, you know, he was the, the illustrator. Botanist. Oh, the botanist, but, yeah. And Parkinson was the illustrator. And I had the reprints that were reprinted in 88, right? Not worth, they were damaged. They weren't with a lot of money, but I had a lot of them. So I decided to chop them up and use them to create sort of this garden coming out of her head. Oh, it's, it right? really and they works were, well. Yeah. And then a bit of text because yeah. I can't help myself. <laughs> John McDonald oh, always points out that I'm bombastic and I really don't need to tell people it's about the oh. fourth estate because Laura Tingle's obviously a journalist, everyone knows. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I but I like it's a, it's meant to be a poster or a, yes, a cover that's of a, right. more a cover of that's a book, right. I think, this one. How do you feel when critics say something? Uh, Negative. Well it's always it's better to be talked about than not at all. Exactly. Right? That's right. So you yeah. know, now, I'm always interested in hearing about what people think of critics. Okay, now let's so that we don't run out of time. Where I are we at? So yeah, now we've just been talking about your dad, and here is a great photo of your dad. He looks very cool in this photo. I've got to say, taken by Robert Robert Walker, um, and here is your Archibald painting oh, of your dad. Yeah, right. so it's called Peter Powditch is a dead man smoking. Um, now I know you. You've told me that you have it. You didn't. You lived with your mum most of the time as you were growing up, uh, but then you really got close to your dad in an adult life and especially as, you know, when you became an artist. So you must have been quite close to him. How did he feel about the Archibald painting? Um, he loved it. He he came down for that. This was 2009 I did this one. Um, so, yes, I grew up with my mother. I saw dad on holidays and just not he, – he was sort of a very sort of distant, you know, part of my life. I mean, constant, but not a lot of involvement. But um, when I became an artist in the early, late 90s or whatever, he was obviously still exhibiting at Ray Hughes Gallery over in Surrey Hills then. And um, we got quite close because I started exhibiting. And our work, mm. I guess, was very different. So there was no competitive aspect to it. We weren't treading, you know, um, you know, the same board, so to speak. So I had this sort of like lovely about 10-year period where I started, kind of really got to know him and he'd come down to Sydney and stay in my studio because he chained smoke so he wasn't allowed in the house. Um, and I, I chose that photo to show you. There's virtually not a photograph on record of my father not smoking, right? Okay, so he smoked yeah. with a passion. He, he, It was his it was part of his personality, you know, which is why he just never could give up. But around 2009, 70, um, 2009, um, just trying to think how old he was then. Look, he's, the, the, the cigarettes were really starting to play havoc with his health. And, you know, me and my sisters, we all had young kids and they loved their grandfather. And, like, I just thought I just really wanted him to put us first, mm. right, mm. everyone else other than himself. Now, he didn't stop smoking and he lived another how many years since 2009? No, Another 14 yeah, years. Well, he yeah. lived to 79, just shy of his 80th birthday, actually. So, or just shy of his 79th birthday. So really, you know, he did, he did well. He was still smoking to the end, right? He was in a bit of a feedback leap, though, because he'd sleep all the time. He couldn't smoke as much, which was great. <laughs> but he still smoked. Gosh. Yeah. And it was just, and he loved it because dad was a very, he, dad taught, um, at Sydney, uh, College of the Arts for years, and he was very. His students love him. The number of people over my life that have just said my dad was a huge influence on them. He taught like cartoonists like Reg Lynch, um, Kathy Wilcox, who's still going at the Herald, oh, yeah. you know, and and he yeah. taught this class called image making. And basically, they just said your dad just taught me. You know, it was the best teacher I ever had. So, and he mm. and a lot of his work was um very graphic, right, and putting juxtaposing stuff. And um, 
I, I didn't know whether this overstepped the mark, but I, I asked him what he thought and he said, nah, love it, do it. He came to the opening, you know, chain smoke yeah. on the gallery steps. Um, <laughs> I just oh, tell you, so- I, I remember saying, and at the time I was showing with Ray Hughes and I just left Ray Hughes and I don't know, some of you will know of a certain age, Ray had quite a reputation and he was quite brutal if you left him. Um, scorched earth policy and I'd quit the gallery and a few months later dad had had a show at Ray Hughes and Ray's was a gallery where everyone was allowed to smoke regardless of the laws and um, I go in there and dad's chain smoking and it's the first time I've been back in the gallery and Ray just you know pulls me aside and goes James James and points to dad who's chain smoking and he goes I'm so so glad to see that your portrait had such a profound effect on your father. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also we should point out that he there were two other portraits of Peter Powditch oh, that yes. made it in the Archibald as well. And and there's one of them was acquired by the art gallery and is downstairs in the members' lounge. So if you do go down for a drink, have a look. It's down there. So Mitch Kansas' portrait's downstairs and then he yep. was done a year or two later by Noel Thurgate which got hung as well. Yeah, so he was he had a lot of Archibald yeah. memories, no doubt. Now, actually, oh. we should have a look at this little if you have a look here at this strip on the side, that is the repetition of a like a film frame repeated repeated. So dad and I did a show together in 2003 at Ray Hughes and to Ray's credit, what was beautiful, he said everyone's going to say this is is it sycophantic? No, what is Nep- it? When, nepotist- nepotistic, yeah, right? Yeah. So we're just gonna we're gonna call the show Powderch and Powderch, right? And you know, <laughs> make, it. make a point of saying, you know, yes, you're related, and yes, you're here because you know I know your father and blah blah blah. So and part of the invite is we obviously had images of our work, but we wanted to include an old family photo. So I had I've still got thousands of these invites. So for this work, I cut out the little family photo, which is a classic old photo, which, which is this right? one. Which is all of us sitting around our grandparents' house up in Taree. That's Dad up there sitting underneath a bikini picture of his from the seventies. Yeah. Giant black and white whiskey bottle in the middle. All us kids pretending to smoke, right? <laughs> My grandmother, grandfather, and the two white, you know, white singlet. Just absolutely classic. So it's a great and photo. That's from, what was it? I think it's about nineteen. I'm probably about thirteen, so it's probably seventy nine or nineteen eighty. Anyway, I love them. There's a whole series of photos and we're all just chugging away. I ended up smoking for bloody half my life. I've given up again, right? Yeah, So yeah, yeah. anyway, smoking. Oh, but everyone smoked. My parents <laughs> smoked in the house like when I was growing up, you know, yeah. I mean, it was very common um, uh, in my so childhood that- as well. Yeah. Well, now we're going, this is related to um, your dad as well and it's, as you can see, it's called um, a crowdy. Crowdy Head. Oh, Crowdy Head after Peter Powditch. And Crowdy Head is a place you'd go for holidays, isn't it? It's like a fishing village up north coast of New South Wales. It was like a place you went with your family, is that right? Well, so Dad's parents were in Tari and I spent every holidays in Tari with my grandparents and my sisters, right? So that was the only time I really had family because I was off with my mum, single mum otherwise. Um, but every Christmas we'd go to Crowdy Head, which is just near Tari on the coast, tiny little fishing village, sort of um, it's still minute. And we would go and it's just a big headland with a lighthouse on top and a fishing harbour at the bottom, which is now sadly no longer functioning. And if you just jump, so this is last year's win prize. Yes. Okay. So just jump forward. There's a little, so last year I did did Laura Tingle. I was way behind schedule. I had, it was the week the entries were due and it's Sunday night. I've just knocked over Laura Tingle. It's glazed, ready to go, but I haven't done a win. I'm lying on the couch and my partner's going, Matt's going, you know, are you going to do something for the win? I'm going, no, there's no time. There's no time. And 
and this painting is one of Dad's from 19... It's not there. 1969, I think this. But this is one of his very simplified abstracts of Crowdy Head that hangs above my couch. And I'm sitting there staring at it and she goes, Matt goes, why don't you do something like, you know, to honour your father? Because he'd only passed away a month or two earlier or whatever. And I said, oh, okay. And so... I started fiddling around with that basic shape, the arc, you know, and uh, and um, the ocean and the sky, whatever. And I sort of did these little drawings and then I thought, okay, well, I need to make it mine though. I can't just reproduce one of Dad's. So I had all this really chunky, thick, corrugated cardboard oh, in the yeah. studio, huge sheets of it, which had come back from – it's the packing that the Arco New South Wales builds to send the Archibalds on their regional tour. Oh. So when your work comes back to you, in this case it was Anthony Albanese, you get this huge crate – and these huge oh, sheets of cardboard. Right. So I basically played with this composition. If you jump back now to the the Oops, actual the, the actual works, um, all I did was take sort of probably the bo- top left is sort of the closest to Dad's original, I think maybe. Yes. Right. And yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. I just peeled off to expose some of the corrugation to give the cliff face. Right. And then I basically repeated. Initially, I was just going to do one third. So the four objects together and then my partner oh, yes. bizarrely said, so I had these, I'd drawn them up and photocopied them and was doing, playing with different compositions. And she said, that's no, going to be bigger. And I'm going, it's Tuesday. It's due, you know, by Friday. <laughs> so, and then, I th- and basically using, I guess, the skills from set building, it was just mass producing the arcs of the curve and cutting them accurately and gluing it down. So the work in the end was quite big, 366 centimetres, so bigger. It was a bit it, bigger than that. It was beautiful in the gallery. I've yeah. got to say, it's a headland, isn't it? And there's like a yeah, it's I, basically I it's a it tiny, it. a tiny spit of sand, and then it's basically just this big headland, mm. right? And all the rock mm. face has been broken away because they used it to build the huge breakwaters in Harrington and around that area. Mm. Um, so oh, yeah, it's very successful work. Uh, and what happened to it? Because it's so big. What happened? Uh, it got bought. It's yeah. rare for me. I mean, a lot of these works for the wind and the arch, but I'm going to. I don't think you know, they're like white elephants, right? Like they don't go anywhere. This one Especially got bought out. Of, are this, hard to... this this one got bought out of the um the win prize last year. Oh wow! Right, and went off to a home in New Zealand, I think. Yeah. Oh, it's a fabulous work. Yeah. Well, let's have a look. Ah, now this is this year's win prize. Yes. Now, uh, as you know, win prize is for landscape or figure sculpture. And this is a landscape in two senses. There is a little landscape at the top, but it's also a metaphorical landscape of the Win Prize, I think. Um, it's got listed every single winner of the Win Prize from 1897. So that would have been interesting to even just to fit, to write those out. It must have been interesting to see all well, the names. It was, okay, so the Win Prize, so it's, this is the 11th time hung in the Win. I think I've entered 18, 17, 18 times or whatever, so it's probably... Pretty good strike rate. Fairly good strike rate. Um, but every year it really is. Last year's, like I said, it came at the last minute and it was a frantic to get over the line. This year I actually had more time because Sam Neill had come to the studio way ahead of schedule. So I had that in the bag, had finished him. So I actually had like a f- good two weeks to sit around and think about the win. And it's just always, because I, I, all these prizes I have to mould my practice, which is assemblage, and turn them into paintings so that they have a semblance of chance of actually getting in and then, you know, God forbid, win one year. Um, <laughs> so so what am I going to say? Last year is obviously the big dad's um, crowdy head one, paint, no questions asked. This year I just, I've had this old, this big blackboard for years. It's been moved to every studio for the last 22 years and nearly every year I think I should use it for a win prize piece because it's got the green 
mm. landscape. It's cinematic. It's like a big double window, if you like. Um, it's an old school book, blackboard, obviously. And I've got it out on so many occasions and it's gone nowhere. And this year I just had it out and I just sat staring at it, you know, with nothing on it going, what are you? What are you? Then I started doing, I don't know, bored. I'm doing some research on the Arco New South Wales website about the win, looking back through all the winners. Okay. Okay. What did that have in it? Okay. Right. Okay. I can try that. And I'm going back. <laughs> so I'm going back through it all. And then it just kind of evolved. Initially, I wanted to do it like a school. Um, I was going to be very postmodern and it was going to be the exact text off the Arco website about the history of the win. It was like a, like a history lesson on a school. School board oh, yeah, with the date, yeah. what the weather was like that day, you know, yeah. the days of the week written down the side, this week's number. And then that kind of, I ran that by, by Nat as well. And she said, that's really stupid. And then I thought, oh, what about just a, like a, like a, like a country leaderboard, like a really, but you know, it's not glamorous. It's not, it's not the lovely, um, timber one that's gold painted, right? You know, they don't have yeah, enough yeah, money yeah. at the Wagga Wagga, you know. <laughs> Bowling club. So what if I did that? And again, I ran that by Nat, who said that's like as stupid as the last idea. And, but, but I think, but, but, but once I started adding all the elements to it, so all the stuff I had in the studio, I've got lots of old sporting memorabilia and, and I built the W on the top out of the frames that were around the magpie and the kookaburra, added the bits and pieces to it. It sort of took on a life of its own. Nat loved it in the end. Ralph, my dealer, came up, art dealer that is, came over and had a look at it. <laughs> Came over and had a look at it and said, ah, oh, it's great. It's absolutely terrific. I love it. Um, so yeah, it's every winner. It's unique. This, I've got to say, I um, like it too. And uh, why the, what, why there mar- some names marked? So there's some tags on there and all that does is you can't quite see there, but they represent the number of times you've won it. So up there, second from the oh. top in the second column in, is Hans Heisen. He won it nine times. So going back. Um, most recently, the only person that's won it recently more than once is Imans Tillers in 212 and 213. So he'll have a two next to his name. Oh, so basically, I see. Right. it's just sort of meant to be because it's sort of that idea of the Archibald, the Witness, and they're like, they're the closest we get to like sport in art. Yeah, true. Right? That's true. So it's kind of meant to be a bit like a betting board as well, or you could view it as, you know, who's got the odds, who's going to win it. Mm, which people yeah. do bet on it. But um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I love it. Okay, so and we're going to we're going to finish off with um, the Sam Neil portrait, which is in the Archibald this year, which is an absolutely fabulous portrait. And I think most people, when they first see it, if they don't know, they haven't read the statement, they think, "What is going on?" <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about it? Okay, so the the pitch to him was simply, "I want to do." So he's he's quite well known now for his vineyard two paddocks. Yeah, that's they're winning right. lots of awards, Central Otago. And during lockdown, he was very funny. Did anyone follow him yes, during lockdown? And he with was ukulele. And he was trapped he was playing with his pigs and his ducks and all the animals are named after famous people he's worked with, right? And um, and he was doing that Schwami Sam as well, giving love advice. Oh, I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah, oh, okay. Very funny. I'll go back and have Anyway, a I just thought it was really, really, it was just, I just thought they were very funny. And then when I trawled back through his Instagram, I realised he's got a very quirky sense of humour. Very, very funny. Doesn't take himself too seriously. So I mm. sent a pitch. I want to do something to do with your farm life, vineyard, blah, blah, blah. And I got back a very polite look. You know, it's just not something I'm interested in doing at the moment. Um, but try me again next year. You know, so he left the door open, mm. right? Mm. Um, and then I had an epiphany that Sam had to be wearing his favourite pig, who's Angelica Houston. Um, my partner is a extraordinary knitter, crocheter. So I pitched it to her that she could knit the beanie. So that was crocheted. And if you just wow. jump forward the slide, so it's like he said, approach me in the new year. 
right? So 2nd of January, I didn't wait long, I send him this really bad picture. I just sort of grabbed some stuff off the internet and spliced it together in Instagram and said, okay, Sam, I want to paint you in this beanie, knitted by my partner. You know, it's you'll be wearing Angelica Houston. It's going to be terrific. You know, come on. And he, to my surprise, he got back to me straight away and just said, James, that would be grand. I love the beanie idea and, and the pig idea. Oh. And within weeks he popped up, Nat crocheted the beanie he wore the beanie and we did she design it and, and herself yes it was a very very long process <laughs> i can imagine it nearly ended the relationship um and then and then uh <laughs> while he was at the studio uh look we were just talking about we talked mainly about old movies and things because i had out a whole heap of old books that he was in from years ago so oh, he was yeah. it was quite a retrospective introspective thing like you know he was he'd been reading i think he'd been spent all day doing an audio book reading for his book that was just about to be released where he was about to break the news he had cancer yeah yeah. so he was quite tired and he was very introspective and he was just looking through these old film books you know talking about a number of people that obviously are dead now that he worked with years ago and and then i had this other book by colin wheeler of central otago landscapes in my pile of stuff for him to you know to to make conversation. Yeah. And he's leafing through it and every one of them was somewhere that he knew exactly where it was, just down the road from one of his vineyards or just up the road. One of them was a building he was going to buy and they were going to use or whatever hadn't. And so I really wanted to use them to give some colour to the work and also just get a bit of a film reference in it. So it's about his farm, his vineyard, his love of his animals, but I thought I do want to reference the fact he's a great film actor. Yeah. So that creates a sort of film reference. He hated that. He didn't want those pictures in it. But we also talked a bit about art. He loves Colin McCann, the great New Zealand artist, and those huge graphic text-based works. And I just, it's like sometimes you can get an idea and you should let it go, but I just wanted to call the work Sam I Am, right? And, of course, Colin McCann's famous for the giant I Am painting, so I had to get Colin McCann in there. So I asked him to give me some text that I could handwrite um, on the right-hand side, which is what's ended up there. Um, just to give it a sort of Colin McCann-esque vibe. Um, oh, so he wrote that. So he gave me the text. Yeah. I wanted him to come to the studio, but that was a bridge too far and ha- handwrited himself. So in the end, I just got the text and then put it on myself. Um, and again, in the background, there's book pages that reference, I think, the three little pig stories in his chin, in his chinny chin chin. There's some references to filmmaking, some music that he um, was into that I'd seen on his Instagram account. Um, oh, yeah. just fabulous. Oh, well, I'm so glad we finished off with that because people can go and see it and yes. it's going to be here for another what, week or so, I think, a few days. So thank you so much, James, for this conversation. Thank you for I having learned me. so much and it's such an interesting body of work and I just love seeing um, all these Wynn, Sulman and Archibald paintings every year. So congratulations. Thank you very much. What a great artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James Powditch. Also, some of you might know I was in Perth for a few weeks, and while I was there I had a chance to see the current show at Linton and Kay Gallery of the excellent still life artist Samantha Dennison. And I interviewed Sam live on Instagram a few days ago, and that interview is now on the YouTube channel where I've included footage of her show, and there's a link to that in the show notes. 
Sam lives in WA, but in Albany, which is about five hours away from Perth, where I was when we did the live. So even though I'm not doing in-depth podcast interviews at the moment, I couldn't resist having a chat with her after I'd seen her show. So check that out if you're interested in high quality, contemporary realist still life painting. And thank you for those of you who have rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts, who have subscribed to the podcast and who have subscribed to the YouTube channel, both of which are free. It helps get the show out to the world. And let's face it, the more people who know about the great painters of Australia, the better. Don't forget you can uh, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to connect with me there. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Mm -hmm.